0: No man achieves great success who is unwilling to make personal sacrifices. Chapter 9 Persistence The Sustained Effort Necessary to Induce Faith The Eighth Step Toward Riches Persistence is an essential factor in the procedure of transmuting desire into its monetary equivalent. The basis of persistence is the power of will. Willpower and desire, when properly combined, make an irresistible pair. Those who accumulate great fortunes are sometimes called cold-blooded or ruthless. Frequently, it is simply because their critics simply don't understand that what they have is a strong desire, backed up by willpower, which they mix with persistence. It is the combination that ensures the attainment of their objectives the majority of people are ready to throw their aims and purposes overboard and give up at the first sign of opposition or misfortune. A few carry on despite all opposition until they attain their goal. There may be no heroic connotation to the word persistence, but persistence does for your character what carbon does to iron. It hardens it to steel. The building of a fortune will involve the application of the entire thirteen factors of this philosophy. These principles must be understood, and they must be applied with persistence by all who accumulate money. Your Test of Persistence If you are reading this book with the intention of seriously applying the knowledge, the first test of your persistence will come when you begin to follow the six steps described in the third chapter, Desire. Unless you are one of the few people who already have a definite goal and a definite plan for its attainment, you may read the instructions, but you will never actually apply them in your daily life. Lack of persistence is one of the major causes of failure. Moreover, my experience with thousands of people has proved that lack of persistence is a weakness common to the majority of people. However, it is a weakness that may be overcome by effort. The ease with which lack of persistence may be conquered will depend entirely upon the intensity of your desire. The starting point of all achievement is desire. Keep this constantly in mind. Weak desires bring weak results, just as a small amount of fire makes a small amount of heat. If you are lacking in persistence, this weakness may be remedied by building a stronger fire under your desires. Continue reading through to the end of this book. Then go back to chapter 3 and start immediately to carry out the instructions for using the six steps. The eagerness with which you follow these instructions will indicate clearly how much or how little you really desire to accumulate money. If you find that you are indifferent, you may be sure that you have not yet acquired the money consciousness that you must possess before you can be sure of accumulating a fortune. Fortunes gravitate to those whose minds have been prepared to attract them, just as surely as water gravitates to the ocean. If you are weak in persistence, focus on the instructions in Chapter 11, Power of the Mastermind. Surround yourself with a mastermind group, and through the cooperation of the members of this group, you can develop persistence. You will find additional instructions for the development of persistence in Chapter 5, Autosuggestion and in Chapter 13, The Subconscious Mind. Follow the instructions in these chapters until you build up habits that convey to your subconscious mind a clear picture of the object of your desire. From that point on, you will not be handicapped by lack of persistence. Your subconscious mind works continuously while you are awake and while you are asleep. Are you money-conscious or poverty conscious. Occasional effort to apply the rules will be of no value to you. To get results, you must apply all of the rules until they become a fixed habit with you. In no other way can you develop the necessary money consciousness. Just as money is attracted to those who have deliberately set their mind on it, poverty is attracted to those whose mind is open to it. And although money consciousness must be developed intentionally, poverty consciousness develops without conscious application of habits favorable to it. Poverty consciousness will seize the mind that is not occupied with money consciousness. If you understand the point of the preceding paragraph, you will understand the importance of persistence in the accumulation of a fortune. Without persistence, you will be defeated even before you start. With persistence, you will win. If you have ever had a nightmare, you will realize the value of persistence. You are lying in bed, half awake, with a feeling that you are about to smother. You are unable to turn over or to move a muscle. You realize that you must begin to regain control over your muscles. Through persistent effort of willpower, you finally manage to move the fingers of one hand. By continuing to move your fingers, you extend your control to the muscles of one arm until you can lift it. Then you gain control of the other arm. You finally gain control over the muscles of one leg and then extend it to the other leg. Then, with one supreme effort of will, you regain complete control over your muscular system and snap out of your nightmare. You did it step by step. You may find it necessary to snap yourself out of your mental inertia in a similar way. First, by moving slowly, then increasing your speed until you gain complete control over your will. Be persistent, no matter how slowly you may have to move at first. With persistence will come success. Snap out of mental inertia. If you select your mastermind group with care, You will have in it at least one person who will aid you in the development of persistence. Some people who have accumulated great fortunes did so because of necessity. They developed the habit of persistence because circumstances forced them to become persistent. Those who have cultivated the habit of persistence seem to enjoy insurance against failure. No matter how many times they are defeated, they finally arrive up toward the top of the ladder. Sometimes it appears that there is a hidden guide whose duty is to test us through all sorts of discouraging experiences. Those who pick themselves up after defeat and keep on trying finally arrive, and the world says, I knew you could do it. The hidden guide lets no one enjoy great achievement without passing the persistence test. Those who can't take it simply do not make the grade. Those who can take it are rewarded for their persistence, and in return they get the goal they are pursuing. But that is not all. They receive something infinitely more important than material compensation, the knowledge that every failure brings with it the seed of an equivalent advantage. Persist past your failures. The people who learn from experience the importance of persistence will not accept defeat as being anything more than temporary. They are the ones whose desires are so persistently applied that defeat is finally changed into victory. We see that an overwhelmingly large number of people go down in defeat, never to rise again. We also see the few who take the punishment of defeat as an urge to greater effort. But what we do not see, what most of us never suspect of existing, is the silent but irresistible power that comes to the rescue of those who fight on in the face of discouragement. If we speak of this power at all, we call it persistence and let it go at that. One thing is sure, if you do not have persistence, you will not achieve noteworthy success in any calling. As I am writing these lines, I can look out the window and see, less than a block away, the great mysterious Broadway— the graveyard of dead hopes, and the front porch of opportunity. From all over the world, people have come to Broadway seeking fame, fortune, power, love, or whatever it is that human beings call success. Once in a great while, someone steps out from the long procession of seekers, and the world hears that another person has conquered Broadway. But Broadway is not easily nor quickly conquered. Broadway acknowledges talent— recognizes genius, and pays off in money only after a person has refused to quit. The secret is always inseparably attached to one word—persistence. Editor's Comments Today we think of making it on Broadway in terms of the theater, but here Napoleon Hill uses Broadway as a metaphor for the New York arts, publishing, and entertainment industries in general. In the original edition of Think and Grow Rich, Hill used this introduction to tell of Fanny Hurst, one of the best-selling authors of the day, who pounded the streets of New York for four years and received 36 rejection slips from one publisher alone before her persistence paid off and she finally got published. Although Napoleon Hill chose Fanny Hurst to illustrate his point about overcoming poverty and adversity, he knew all about both from personal experience. Hill's own story is one of very humble beginnings and devastating failures that would have defeated most people. It was only through his extraordinary persistence that the original edition of the book you hold in your hands was published. And for that reason, the editors of this edition have included this brief biography of Napoleon Hill. The following is adapted from A Lifetime of Riches, The Biography of Napoleon Hill, written by Michael J. Ritt, Jr. and Kirk Landers and also draws upon Napoleon Hill's first bestseller, his four-volume masterwork, Law of Success. In it, Hill told of the seven turning points in his own life, and those excerpts told in his words are told in the first person. Born into poverty in the backwoods of Virginia, young Knapp, as he was called, was the local gun-toting troublemaker. He would probably have ended up a criminal had his widowed father not met and married Martha Ramey Banner. Knapp's new stepmother set out to change the family's mountain ways, and she started by trading Napoleon a typewriter for his six-shooter pistol. She told him, If you become as good with a typewriter as you are with that gun, you may become rich and famous and known throughout the world. Her faith and encouragement turned young Knapp around, and by the age of 15, he was submitting stories to the local newspapers and doing everything he could to get himself out of his meager circumstance. After completing high school and one year at a business college, he wrote an audacious letter to Rufus Ayers, one of the most powerful men in the coal industry. Hill wrote to apply for a job, but he said that he didn't want a salary. In fact, he said he would pay Ayers. Hill proposed that Ayers could charge him whatever he wanted on a monthly basis. But if at the end of three months Hill had proved his worth— He then would expect Ayers to pay him a salary of the same monthly amount. Ayers admired Hill's style and hired him, with pay. First Turning Point After finishing a course at a business college, I took a job as stenographer and bookkeeper. As a result of having practiced the habit of performing more work and better work than that for which I was paid, I advanced rapidly until I was assuming responsibilities and receiving a salary far out of proportion to my age. Hill also proved to be so trustworthy and honest that Ayers promoted him to replace the manager, making this 19 year old the youngest manager of a mine and in charge of 350 men. Then fate reached out and gave me a gentle nudge. My employer lost his fortune, and I lost my position. This was my first real defeat, and even though it came about as a result of causes beyond my control, I didn't learn a lesson from it until many years later. Second Turning Point My next position was that of sales manager for a large lumber manufacturer in the South. My advancement was rapid, and I did so well that my employer took me into partnership with him. We began to make money, and I began to see myself on top of the world again. Like a stroke of lightning out of a clear sky, the 1907 panic swept down, and overnight it rendered me an enduring service by destroying our business and relieving me of every dollar that I had. Editor's Comment The panic Hill refers to began in the summer of 1907, when a number of banks and stock brokerages declared bankruptcy. Word spread to the general public and it created a run on the banks as depositors lined up to demand that they be given the money they had on deposit. Banks called in loans to meet the demand for cash, but those borrowers couldn't find buyers for their goods or property, so they couldn't pay back their loans. When the banks couldn't get back the money they had loaned, they repossessed the homes or businesses that the borrowers had put up as collateral. Businesses were closed. Farmers were evicted from their land. Jobs were lost so even more banks were forced to close, and it just kept getting worse. America was caught in a downward spiral that was reversed only when the major Wall Street bankers and financial executives, who were themselves in danger of losing their businesses, stepped in to shore up troubled banks. It was in large part because of the bank panic of 1907 that legislation was enacted in 1913 to create the Federal Reserve System. This is the end of the editor's comments. Third Turning Point This was my first serious defeat. I mistook it then for failure, but it was not. And before I complete this lesson, I will tell you why it was not. It required the 1907 panic and the defeat that it brought me to redirect my efforts from the lumber business to the study of law. I entered law school with the firm belief that I would emerge doubly prepared to catch up with the end of the rainbow and claim my pot of gold. Napoleon Hill planned to put himself and his brother through law school by writing articles for Bob Taylor's magazine. It was through the magazine that he arranged the fateful meeting with Andrew Carnegie described at the beginning of this book. As was noted there, when Carnegie proposed the idea of writing The Philosophy of Success, he told Hill that he would have to earn his own way. I attended law school at night and worked as an automobile salesman during the day. Because of the job, I saw the need for trained automobile mechanics. I opened an educational department in the manufacturing plant and began to train ordinary machinists in automobile assembly and repair work. The school prospered, paying me over $1,000 a month in net profits. My banker knew that I was prospering, therefore he loaned me money with which to expand. A peculiar trait of bankers is that they will loan us money without any hesitation when we are prosperous. My banker loaned me money until I was hopelessly in his debt. Then he took over my business as calmly as if it had belonged to him, which it did. From an income of more than a thousand dollars a month, I was suddenly reduced to poverty. For the third time, Hill had experienced defeat, but he was not beaten. He got another job, and all the while continued to work on the Carnegie Project. Fourth Turning Point 1912 Because my wife's family had influence, I secured the appointment as assistant to the chief counsel for one of the largest coal companies in the world. I was among friends and relatives, and I had a position that I could keep for as long as I wished without exerting myself. What more did I need? Nothing, I was beginning to say to myself. Then, without consultation with my friends and without warning, I resigned. This was the first turning point that was of my own selection. It was not forced upon me. I quit that position because the work was too easy, and I was performing it with too little effort. This move proved to be the next most important turning point of my life, although it was followed by ten years of effort that brought almost every conceivable grief the human heart can experience. I selected Chicago as my new field of endeavor. I made up my mind that if I could gain recognition in Chicago, in any honorable sort of work, it would prove that I had something that might be developed into real ability. Fifth Turning Point My first position in Chicago was that of advertising manager for a large correspondence school. I did so well that the president of the school induced me to resign my position and go into the candy manufacturing business with him. We organized the Betsy Ross Candy Company, and I became its first president. The business grew rapidly, and soon we had a chain of stores in eighteen different cities. They did so well, in fact, Hill's partners decided they wanted to take over the business. They had Hill arrested on a false charge, and then offered to withdraw the charge if he would turn over to them his interest in the business. Outraged at the suggestion, Hill refused. When the case went to court, his partners failed to appear for the hearing. Hill sued them for malicious damage to his character. The judge's ruling completely vindicated Hill and allowed him the option to have his partners thrown in jail. Being arrested seemed at the time a terrible disgrace, even though the charge was false. It was not a pleasant experience, and I would not wish to go through a similar experience again. But I must admit that it was worth all the grief it cost me, because it gave me the opportunity to find out that revenge was not a part of my makeup. Sixth Turning Point This turning point came shortly after my dreams of success in the candy business had been shattered, when I turned my efforts to teaching advertising and salesmanship as a department of one of the colleges in the Midwest. My school prospered from the very beginning. I had a resident class and also a correspondence school, through which I was teaching students in nearly every English-speaking country. It was 1917, and in April of that year President Woodrow Wilson declared the United States would enter the war against Germany. Hill contacted the President, who he had previously met through Andrew Carnegie, and offered his services to help the war effort. Hill was given the position of creating public relations materials and helping to sell war bonds. When not operating his school, he threw himself into his war work, for which he insisted that he be paid only $1 a year. Then came the second military draft, and it practically destroyed my school, as it caught most of those who were enrolled as students. At one stroke, I charged off more than $75,000 in tuition fees. Once more, I was penniless. Despite the fact that Hill had to scrape just to get by, he continued to work for President Wilson and continued to refuse to take any compensation. Though Hill had a family to support and the ridicule of his relatives put a tremendous strain on relations, he also continued to work on the Carnegie Project. Hill later said, Believe me, there were times when between the needling of my relatives and the hardships I endured... It was not easy to maintain a positive mental attitude and persevere. Sometimes, in barren hotel rooms, I almost believed my family was right. The thing that kept me going was my conviction that one day I would not only successfully complete my work, but also be proud of myself when it was finished. Seventh Turning Point To describe the seventh of the turning points in my life, I must go back to November 11, 1918. Armistice Day, the end of the World War. The war had left me without a penny, as I have already said, but I was happy to know that the slaughter had ceased and reason was about to reclaim civilization. The time had come for another turning point. I sat down at my typewriter, and to my astonishment, my hands began to play a tune on the keyboard. I had never written so rapidly or so easily before. I did not plan or think about what I was writing, I just wrote whatever came into my mind. What Hill wrote was a long essay in which he described a new idealism based on the golden rule that he thought could emerge from the war. He declared that he would help spread the word and promised that somehow he was going to find the money to launch a new magazine to be called Hill's Golden Rule. He took his essay to George Williams, a Chicago printer he had met while working at the White House and by early January of 1919, Hill's Golden Rule magazine was on the newsstands. The first issue was 48 pages. In the beginning, with no money to pay anyone else, Hill wrote and edited every word himself, changing his writing style for each article as well as using a variety of pen names. Additional staff was hired later, which soon led to problems on the inside and on the outside and Williams attempted to buy out Hill's share of the business. But when Hill realized that one stipulation of the buyout prevented him from any involvement in a competing publication, in October of 1920, he simply left. By April of 1921, he had raised the money for a new publication, Napoleon Hill's Magazine, the foundation of which was again the Golden Rule. But it also expanded into presenting many of the principles of success That would become the basis of Hill's later books. The magazine's acceptance and success also led to Hill's success as a speaker and motivator, which led to even greater success for the magazine. At the same time, Napoleon Hill was working with one of the inmates of a penitentiary to develop a correspondence course, which he took to the prisons to encourage prisoner rehabilitation. Most everything Hill did during this time was successful, and the success of the prison program was significant. But the greed of two members of the Board of Directors, one of whom was the prison chaplain, eventually led in 1923 to the demise of not only the educational rehabilitation programs, but also the magazine and numerous other successful offshoot ventures. The bleak irony, as Michael Ritt notes in A Lifetime of Riches, was that few enterprises in the 1920s could have been more idealistic or humanitarian in concept. Yet in seeking to stir goodness in men's souls, these enterprises had stirred mean-spirited men to a bloodlust that destroyed everything. Without his magazine, Hill went back to teaching and lecturing, which led to an introduction to a crusading newspaper publisher, Don Mellet, who offered to help Hill publish the results of his work on the Carnegie Project. At this same time, Mellet learned that Prohibition gangsters were selling narcotics and bootleg liquor to schoolchildren in Canton, and members of the local police force were being bribed to do nothing about it. Mellet was outraged and wrote an expose in his Canton Daily News while Hill contacted the governor to implement a state investigation of the corrupt police department. A week before Hill and Mellet were to finalize the financing for the publication of Hill's book, Don Mellet was ambushed outside his home and assassinated by a gangster and a renegade cop. They tried to kill Hill, too, but through pure luck he escaped and fled to the Smoky Mountains, where he remained holed up in a backwood shack for most of a year. Destitute and in fear for his life, he lapsed into a state of deep depression. Then in one extraordinary night of self-analysis, he willed himself out of his depression, and resolved to finish the challenge Carnegie had posed almost 20 years earlier. Hill went to Philadelphia, convinced a publisher to put up the money, then worked night and day for almost four months to finish the manuscript. In March of 1928, Hill published the results of his efforts, a multi-volume masterwork entitled Law of Success. No one had ever seen anything like it. It was a phenomenon, a runaway bestseller. A little over a year later, while Hill was finally enjoying the fruits of his long labors, the stock market crash of twenty-nine hit. The bottom fell out of everything, including the market for books. Though he never gave up on his vision, like the rest of America, Hill struggled through the Depression. He lectured, he wrote, and he taught in every way he could, but it was very hard to preach personal achievement to a country that had lost faith in itself. Napoleon Hill made it his personal mission to turn the tide by creating a variety of self-help programs, but it became disappointingly apparent that it was going to take more than one man to do it. When Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected president, he reached out to Hill. Though Napoleon Hill was an avowed capitalist, he believed enough in the ultimate goal of FDR's policies that he committed himself to helping the new administration. Throughout the Depression years, he became a close confidant of the Presidents, helping to guide Roosevelt in his efforts to revitalize America. It is said that it was Hill who gave FDR the famous line, We have nothing to fear, but fear itself. And though Hill was dead broke, just as he had done for President Wilson, he refused to accept more than one dollar a year for his efforts. In 1937... As America was finally beginning to see glimmerings of hope that the Great Depression might end, Hill convinced his publisher that America now needed a book to help shake off the mental and emotional stigma of those terrible times. He was right. They released Think and Grow Rich to such resounding success that it sold well over a million copies even before the Depression ended. At this writing, it has sold more than 60 million copies worldwide and to this day it still sells more than a million copies a year in its various editions. Take Your Own Persistence Inventory Persistence is a state of mind, therefore, it can be cultivated. Like all states of mind, persistence is based upon definite causes, among them these. Definiteness of Purpose Knowing what you want is the first and most important step toward the development of persistence. A strong motive will force you to surmount difficulties. Desire. It is comparatively easy to acquire and maintain persistence in pursuing the object of intense desire. Self-reliance. Belief in your ability to carry out a plan encourages you to follow the plan through with persistence. Self-reliance can be developed through the principle described in Chapter 5, Autosuggestion. Definiteness of Plans. Organized plans, even ones that may be weak or impractical, encourage persistence. Accurate Knowledge. Knowing that your plans are sound, based upon experience or observation, encourages persistence. Guessing, instead of knowing, destroys persistence. Cooperation. Sympathy, understanding, and cooperation with others tend to develop persistence. Willpower. The habit of concentrating your thoughts on making plans to attain your definite purpose leads to persistence. Habit. Persistence is the direct result of habit. The mind absorbs and becomes a part of the daily experiences upon which it feeds, fear, the worst of all enemies, can be overcome by forcing yourself to perform and repeat acts of courage. Everyone who has seen active service in war knows this. Take inventory of yourself and determine what you are lacking in this essential quality of persistence. Measure yourself point by point and see how many of the previous eight factors of persistence you lack. The analysis may lead to discoveries that will give you a new understanding of yourself and and what you need to get ahead. The following is a list of the real enemies that stand between you and achievement. These are not only the symptoms indicating weakness of persistence, but also the deeply seated subconscious causes of this weakness. Study the list carefully and face yourself squarely if you really wish to know who you are and what you are capable of doing. These are the weaknesses that must be mastered by anyone who really wants to accumulate riches. 1. Failure to recognize and to define clearly exactly what you want. 2. Procrastination, with or without cause, usually backed up with a long list of alibis and excuses. 3. Lack of interest in acquiring specialized knowledge. 4. Indecision and the habit of passing the buck instead of facing issues squarely, also backed by alibis and excuses. 5. The habit of relying upon excuses instead of making definite plans to solve your problems. 6. Self-satisfaction. There is little remedy for this and no hope for those who suffer from it. 7. Indifference usually reflected in your readiness to compromise rather than meet opposition and fight it. 8. The habit of blaming others for your mistakes and accepting circumstances as being unavoidable. 9. Weakness of desire because you neglected to choose motives that will push you to take action. 10. Willingness to quit at the first sign of defeat, based upon one or more of the six basic fears. 11. Lack of organized plans that you have written out so they can be analyzed. 12. The habit of neglecting to act on ideas or to grasp opportunity when it presents itself. 13. Wishing instead of willing. 14. The habit of compromising with poverty instead of aiming at riches. A general lack of ambition to be, to do, or to own. 15. Searching for all the shortcuts to riches, trying to get without giving a fair equivalent, usually reflected in the habit of gambling or trying to drive unfair bargains. 16. Fear of criticism resulting in failure to create plans and put them into action because of what other people might think, do, or say. This is one of your most dangerous enemies because it often exists in your subconscious mind and you may not even know it is there. See the six basic fears in the last chapter. If You Fear Criticism Following is an examination of the symptoms of the fear of criticism. The majority of people permit relatives, friends, and the public at large to influence them so that they cannot live their own lives because they fear criticism. Many people make mistakes in marriage but stay married then go through life miserable and unhappy because they fear criticism. Anyone who has submitted to this form of fear knows the irreparable damage it does by destroying one's ambition and the desire to achieve. Millions of people neglect to go back and get an education after having left school because they fear criticism. Countless numbers of men and women permit relatives to wreck their lives in the name of family duty because they fear criticism. Duty does not require you to submit to the destruction of your personal ambitions and the right to live your own life in your own way. People refuse to take chances in business because they fear the criticism that may follow if they fail. The fear of criticism in such cases is stronger than the desire for success. Too many people refuse to set high goals for themselves because they fear the criticism of relatives and friends who may say, Don't aim so high, people will think you're crazy. When Andrew Carnegie suggested that I devote 20 years to the organization of a philosophy of individual achievement, my first impulse was fear of what people might say. His suggestion was far greater than anything I had ever conceived for myself. My first instinct was to create excuses, all of them traceable to the fear of criticism. Something inside of me said, You can't do it the job is too big and requires too much time. What will your relatives think of you? How will you earn a living? No one has ever organized a philosophy of success. What right have you to believe you can do it? Who are you, anyway, to aim so high? Remember your humble birth. What do you know about philosophy? People will think you are crazy, and they did. Why hasn't some other person done this before now? These and many other questions flashed into my mind. It seemed as if the whole world had suddenly turned its attention to me with a purpose of ridiculing me into giving up all desire to carry out Mr. Carnegie's suggestion. Later in life, after having analyzed thousands of people, I discovered that most ideas are stillborn. To grow, ideas need the breath of life injected into them through definite plans of immediate action. The time to nurse an idea is at the time of its birth. Every minute it lives gives it a better chance of surviving. The fear of criticism is what kills most ideas that never reach the planning and action stage. Breaks can be made to order. Many people believe that success is the result of lucky breaks. There may be something to that, but if you depend upon luck, you will almost surely be disappointed. The only break anyone can afford to rely on is a self-made break. These come through the application of persistence. The starting point is definiteness of purpose. Editor's Comments In 1999, Mark Myers, editor of one of the country's most influential self-help newsletters, Bottom Line Personal, wrote a book entitled How to Make Luck. Seven Secrets Lucky People Use to Succeed. In it, he tells of a study that was done by the psychology department at the University of Herefordshire near London. They assembled a group of people, half of whom either thought themselves lucky or were considered to be lucky by others. The other half of the group believed they were unlucky. They were all brought to campus to watch a computerized random coin toss. Each person watched as a cartoon elf came on screen and flipped a coin. Each was asked to call heads or tails. The results of the experiment proved that the unlucky group guessed right approximately the same number of times as the lucky group. In follow-up interviews, the researchers concluded that the only difference between so-called lucky and unlucky people was that the lucky people tended to remember the good things that had happened in their lives, and those that thought they were unlucky tended to dwell on the bad things. The scientific fact is that luck, in terms of calling a coin toss, spinning a wheel, or turning a card, is completely random, and there's nothing we can do about it. All we can control is what we say and do. Everything else that happens to us depends upon the actions of others and the random world in which we live. Then why do some people seem to be so lucky and get all the lucky breaks? Myers says it is because, unlike luck, Lucky breaks are something you can control, and lucky people, whether they know it or not, have taken specific steps to make their good luck. You can influence lucky breaks in two ways. You have to intentionally put yourself in luck's way, and you must make people want to help you because they believe that you deserve their help. Once you have let the world know you are ready for a break, Luck is largely a matter of being introduced to opportunities by people who open doors for us. Myers calls these people gatekeepers. Gatekeepers offer help not only out of goodwill, but also because they hope you will help them in return when you are in a position to do so. People who are lucky make it a point to impress their gatekeepers so that they will be the first to come to mind when opportunities arise. Your gatekeepers must believe that you deserve a break, and that it is worth it to them to give you one. One of the best ways to do that is simply to behave and act lucky. If you act like a loser, people think you are a loser. If you perceive yourself as lucky, it will be easier for others to see you that way. And if you are believed to be a lucky person, your chances of receiving lucky opportunities will increase partly because others hope some of your luck will rub off on them. This is the biggest secret lucky people know. They know that when they seem lucky, more people want to help them. There are people waiting to make a difference in your life if you show them you are willing to make an effort and that you are enthusiastic. Mark Meyer's book is devoted to explaining ways to do that. As Hill says, the only lucky break anyone can afford to rely upon is a self made break. These come through the application of persistence. The starting point is definiteness of purpose. This is the end of the editor's comments. If you stop the first hundred people you meet on the street and ask them what they want most in life, 98 of them would not be able to tell you. If you press them for an answer, some will say security, many will say money. A few will say happiness, and others will say fame and power. Some might tell you they want social recognition, ease in living, the ability to sing, dance, or write. But none of them will be able to give you the slightest indication of a plan by which they hope to attain these vaguely expressed wishes. Riches do not respond to wishes. They respond only to definite plans backed by definite desires through constant persistence. How to Develop Persistence There are four simple steps that lead to the habit of persistence. They call for no great amount of intelligence, no particular amount of education, and little time or effort. These necessary steps are, 1. A definite purpose, backed by a burning desire for its fulfillment. 2. A definite plan, expressed in continuous action. 3. A mind closed tightly against all negative and discouraging influences, including negative suggestions of relatives, friends, and acquaintances. 4. A friendly alliance with one or more persons who will encourage you to follow through with both plan and purpose. These four steps are essential for success in all walks of life. An important purpose of the 13 principles of this philosophy is to enable you to take those four steps as a matter of habit. They are steps by which you may control your economic destiny. They are steps that lead to freedom and independence of thought. They are steps that lead to riches in small or great quantities. They are steps that lead the way to power, fame, and worldly recognition. They are four steps that guarantee favorable breaks. They are steps that convert dreams into physical realities. They are steps that lead also to the mastery of fear, discouragement, indifference. There is a magnificent reward for anyone who learns to take these four steps. It is the privilege of writing your own ticket and of making life yield whatever price is asked. How to Master Difficulties What mystical power gives people of persistence the capacity to master difficulties? Does the quality of persistence set up in your mind some form of spiritual, mental, or chemical activity that gives you access to supernatural forces? Does infinite intelligence throw itself on the side of the person who still fights on when the whole world seems to be against them? These and many other similar questions were in my mind as I watched Henry Ford start from scratch and build an industrial empire with little more than persistence. Or Thomas A. Edison, who, with less than three months of schooling, became the world's leading inventor. He turned his persistence into sound recording and playback machines, motion picture cameras and projectors, and the incandescent light, to say nothing of half a hundred other useful inventions. I had the opportunity to analyze both Mr. Edison and Mr. Ford up close and personal, year by year, over a long period of time. So, I speak from actual knowledge when I say that I found no quality except persistence in either of them that even remotely suggested the major source of their stupendous achievements. If you make an impartial study of the prophets, philosophers, and religious leaders of the past, you will come to the inevitable conclusion that persistence, concentration of effort, and definiteness of purpose were the major sources of their achievements. Consider, for example, THE FASCINATING STORY OF Muhammad Analyze his life. Compare him with men of achievement in this modern age of industry and finance, and observe how they all have one outstanding trait in common—persistence. If you want to understand more about the power of persistence and how it works, I strongly suggest that you read a biography of Muhammad. Editor's Comments At the beginning of the twenty-first century— there was an increased interest in Islam due to the attacks on the World Trade Center and the subsequent war on terror. Consequently, the modern reader will have no difficulty finding a number of very good books about Muhammad. At the time that Hill was writing the first edition of Think and Grow Rich, one of the best biographies of Muhammad was written by Esad Bey, who was born in Baku, Azerbaijan, the son of a Jewish businessman named Nusenbaum. Later, He changed his name when he converted to Islam. During the Russian Revolution, he fled his home for Berlin, where he lived until the rise of Hitler again forced him to move, first to Austria and then finally to Italy. It is believed by some that this man known as Esad Bey also wrote under another pen name, Kurban Said, and was in fact the author of the acclaimed Azerbaijani novel Ali and Nino. That Napoleon Hill was very impressed with this particular biography of Mohammed is clear from his recommendation, which follows. I strongly suggest that you read a biography of Mohammed, especially the one by Esad Bey. This brief review of that book, which appeared in the Herald Tribune, will provide a preview of the rare treat in store for those who take the time to read the entire story of one of the most astounding examples of the power of persistence KNOWN TO CIVILIZATION THE LAST GREAT PROPHET REVIEWED BY THOMAS SUGRU Muhammad was a prophet, but he never performed a miracle. He was not a mystic. He had no formal schooling. He did not begin his mission until he was forty. When he announced that he was the messenger of God, bringing word of the true religion, he was ridiculed and labeled a lunatic. Children tripped him, and women threw filth upon him. He was banished from his native city, Mecca, and his followers were stripped of their worldly goods and sent into the desert after him. When he had been preaching ten years, he had nothing to show for it but banishment, poverty, and ridicule. Yet before another ten years had passed, he was dictator of all Arabia, ruler of Mecca, and the head of a new world religion which was to sweep to the Danube and the Pyrenees before exhausting the impetus he gave it. That impetus was threefold—the power of words, the efficacy of prayer, and man's kinship with God. His career never made sense. Muhammad was born to impoverished members of a leading family of Mecca. Because Mecca, the crossroads of the world, home of the magic stone called the Kaaba, great city of trade, and the center of trade routes was unsanitary, its children were sent to be raised in the desert by Bedouins. Mohammed was thus nurtured, drawing strength and health from the milk of nomad, vicarious mothers. He tended sheep, and soon hired out to a rich widow as leader of her caravans. He traveled to all parts of the Eastern world, talked with many men of diverse beliefs, and observed the decline of Christianity into warring sects. When he was twenty-eight, Khadijah, the widow, looked upon him with favor, and married him. Her father would have objected to such a marriage so she got him drunk and held him up while he gave the paternal blessing. For the next twelve years, Muhammad lived as a rich and respected and very shrewd trader. Then he took to wandering in the desert, and one day he returned with the first verse of the Quran and told Khadijah that the archangel Gabriel had appeared to him and said that he was to be the messenger of God. The Quran, the revealed word of God, was the closest thing to a miracle in Muhammad's life. He had not been a poet. He had no gift of words. Yet the verses of the Quran, as he received them and recited them to the faithful, were better than any verses which the professional poets of the tribes could produce. This, to the Arabs, was a miracle. To them, the gift of words was the greatest gift. The poet was all-powerful. In addition, the Quran said that all men were equal before God, that the world should be a democratic state, Islam. It was this political heresy, plus Muhammad's desire to destroy all the 360 idols in the courtyard of the Kaaba which brought about his banishment. The idols brought the desert tribes to Mecca, and that meant trade. So the businessmen of Mecca, the capitalists, of which he had been one, set upon Muhammad. Then he retreated to the desert and demanded sovereignty over the world. The rise of Islam began. Out of the desert came a flame which would not be extinguished. A democratic army, fighting as a unit and prepared to die without wincing. Muhammad had invited the Jews and Christians to join him, for he was not building a new religion. He was calling all who believed in one God to join in a single faith. If the Jews and Christians had accepted his invitation, Islam would have conquered the world. They didn't. They would not even accept Muhammad's innovation of humane warfare. When the armies of the prophet entered Jerusalem, not a single person was killed because of his faith. When the crusaders entered the city, centuries later, not a Muslim man, woman, or child was spared. But the Christians did accept one Muslim idea, the place of learning, the University.